in our copies of God's Word to the book of Exodus. We return to our studies in Exodus, and we'll be picking up in chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant or female servant, or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Would you join with me? Let's pray and let's ask God would not only help us by his spirit, but that we would hear and receive as he intends. Father, we're thankful to know and to hear that because you are good and upright, that you instruct sinners in the way, that you are the one who leads the humble in the way that is right and that you teach the humble his way. Because, Father, we need to know the steadfast love and faithfulness that come from you. We need to hear from you who is the one who is the faithful, covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. And so we pray and we ask that you would grant us humble hearts that we might receive with meekness the implanted word that's able to save our souls. And we pray in that humiliation that's been wrought by your spirit that you would cause your good seed to be planted in the soil of our lives. Lord, as we consider the law and as we consider the goodness of the law, that it's holy and righteous, that, Father, you would cause it to be seen by us as such and that you would produce the good fruits of righteousness in our lives by your grace, we pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to hear and to receive your word and that you would cause it to bring forth the fruit that you desire. In Christ's name, amen. Love is love. Love is all you need. Love will keep us together. Love wins. Love is the answer. If you were to survey the songs and slogans of Recent decades, and if there are any indication, we live in a society that aims to extol the virtue of love. And certainly the Bible wouldn't disagree. 
with the necessity and with the virtue of love because God is love. And to love your neighbor as yourself is a precept straight from the lips of Jesus. But any sort of fruitful conversation about the importance of love must eventually turn towards the definition of love. What does your love look like? What does it forbid? What does it promote? And should the fact that God is love have any bearing on our definition of love? Further still, what is this God like? And has he given to us any sort of definition that would help clarify the proper expression of love? It may seem counterintuitive, but if you want to understand real love, you need to lay hold of God's law. If you love God, you should love the Ten Commandments. If you are seeking to love your neighbor, you should love the Ten Commandments. I'm emphasizing this important connection between love and law because we're going to be spending the next ten weeks considering these Ten Commandments. Now, upon hearing that, you might be a bit nervous wondering, what does the law have to do with my life in Christ? Or maybe you wonder if you'll grow bored, doubting if the law has any relevance to who you are in your life. Maybe you're a bit overly excited because you are convinced that what this world needs is the enforcement of God's law. Now, regardless of your reaction we need to reckon with the fact that the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, are central to our understanding not only of Exodus, not only of Old Testament history, but the overarching biblical narrative of what we find in all of Scripture and, friend, what it means to be a Christian. Because it's through God's law that we find God's will for our lives and our great need for a Savior. So let's approach this first commandment this morning by just asking two questions. Who is this God that has spoken? And what has he actually commanded? Who is this God and what's the command? Who is this God is helpfully answered by the first two verses. Look back at Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words saying... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, it might be tempting to quickly just glance over these two verses, moving directly into the Ten Commandments, getting to the main course, but this preface must not be overlooked. These words are not just filler. This is not just the kind of background music before the show begins where people take their seats and sit down. This introduction, this preface establishes who God is and why we should obey him. Because before God speaks of his laws, he speaks of himself by spotlighting two important facts. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord, their God, and He's the one who's redeemed Israel from her slavery in Egypt. So these tell us something about God himself and 
who God is to his people. In this preface, we understand two really important things. It tells us something about the God who speaks and who he's speaking to. It tells us who God is in himself. He reveals himself as, verse 2, the Lord. That is, as Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. This Yahweh, who remember back, Exodus chapter 3, revealed himself to Moses, and Moses asked, who should I say has sent me God's revelation of himself? I am. Meaning, he announces himself to be the sovereign, self-existent, self-sufficient, almighty, eternal God. I am. He's the God of the plagues. He is the same God who with his mighty arm, he saves his people through the waters of the Red Sea and at the same time judges his enemies. This is not a God to be dismissed. This is not a God to be ignored. I am Yahweh. Not only do we hear of who this God is in of himself, but we hear who this God is in relation to his people. The God who speaks these ten words reveals himself not only as the Lord, but notice, the Lord, your God. Remember, chapter 20 comes after chapter 19. Why do I say that? Well, because there in chapter 19, God announces that Israel is a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He reveals that they have been set apart as his people. They are his treasured possession, verse 5 and his favored ones among all the earth. He has heard the cries of his people, reassuring them of his covenant love for them, that he's not forgotten them, but he's remembered them, and he's faithfully delivered them. He is the Lord, their God. So, this self-existent God who's eternal and absolute in power, he's not a cold tyrant. He's not a moody deity who happens to show up and just happens to speak to them, but... He's a personal God, a God who redeems his people, the God who identifies himself of all the ways that he could identify himself, and he says, I'm your God, the God who's redeemed you, not just a God. Now, certainly, if you remember chapter 19, the fire, the smoke, the trumpet blasts, the shaking ground, those display that our God is a consuming fire. But in that might... He speaks of redeeming grace. This is who I am. I'm your God, that I've delivered you out of bondage. The timing in which these laws are given is crucial for our right understanding of their function. God does not come to them and announce prior to the exodus, I'm the God who will deliver you out of bondage. If you Keep my commandments. The timing is really important. The giving of the law comes after this merciful act of redemption. And this observation helps us because it keeps us from falling into two equal and opposite errors. The first error is to think that somehow God gives his law so that we might gain some sort of foothold and standing before him and justifying our existence. To somehow keep the law in order to gain his favor, or to 
continue to have his favor, to gain some sort of positional standing that if I do this, then I'll be delivered. Well, that's the error of legalism, that this law comes to them. And God says in past tense, I have delivered you. The other error that it keeps us from is to think that this law is somehow of little consequence or it's irrelevant. I'm a redeemed person. What do I need the law for? I have redeemed you, and I'm going to speak to you my law. The timing is, is actually very, very important if we seek to understand what God is doing. So these Ten Commandments, they're not instructions on how to get out of bondage in Egypt. They are the rules for a free people to enjoy their freedom. Or to say it this way, Christians are no longer enslaved to the bondage of sin. We are liberated to serve God, and the law shows us what that good service looks like. This is why the Apostle Paul would say in Romans 7 that the law is holy, the law is righteous, and that the law is good. And this is why the coming of Jesus does not mean the abolishing of the law. Jesus put that one to rest very quickly. The law is not to be abolished. Now, I've come to fulfill the law, but do you remember what Jesus said after that? Matthew 5, 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So while Christ's coming certainly has everything to do with our understanding of the fulfillment of the law, we must not fall into the other ditch and thinking that it's been abolished. Because to do so is, in Christ's language, a matter of greatness and least in the kingdom. And this is why, as God's people standing now as members of the new covenant, we confess that the law is no longer hanging over us as a covenant of works whereby we are either justified or condemned, but it does remain a tremendous use for us as a rule of life, as it shows to us, informs us of the will of God. What is God's will for my life? And God spoke. Who God is and who he is to us is tremendously important for our right reading and application of the commands that follow. Church, we must never detach the law of God from the Lord our God. The law is not some amputated code severed from the source that God hands out. It's the word of God. It's the revelation of God. It's the instruction from the same God who hears the cries of his people. He's come down to deliver his people out of bondage, and he is going to dwell with them, and he speaks. The commandments not only show us what God wants, they show us what God is like. When he gives us his law, he's giving us something of himself. And so that ought to keep us from being overly dismissive or looking down our nose at the law. That it is something who God says, I have heard your cries. I've graciously redeemed you. Listen. 
So to look at these commandments, we really ought to look at them then as a rule of love. Because they're God's expression of his love for us and showing us his good design for daily living, as well as our love for him as we walk according to these commandments. So we must never lose sight of the fact that the law teaches us how to love God. For the Christian, the law of God is the rule of life as it informs them of what the will of God is and our duty unto him. We show our love to God by delighting in his law. What that means is that we must do as he directs, not as we think, because his law teaches us and shows us how to love him. What this means, friend, is that it guards us from taking this word love to the taxidermist, emptying it of all its substance, filling it with fluff, and then saying, I'm loving God. The law actually fills out what it means to love God. What does that look like? What does God say, this is pleasing unto me? We're helped by looking to the law. Likewise, we must never lose sight of the fact that the law teaches us how to love our neighbor. A Christian is doing much more than sending positive vibes, being nice, seeking to be inclusive when they say, I want to love my neighbor. Because the Christian has a very specific code and a clear definition of what the rule of love is as they seek to love their neighbor. Makes sense then why Jesus would say in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And why would Jesus then say upon these you can hang all the law and the prophets? Who is this God? Well, he's the Lord. He's the redeemer of his people. And he's spoken. Well, what is this command? What's well, there? Plain letters in verse 3. Now, first read, the command is pretty straightforward. You shall have no other gods before me. Eight simple words. The majority, single syllable. Readable by your average second grader. Yet even in this apparent simplicity, the command plunges into the depths of our souls by pointing us to a God who is eternal and limitless in his knowledge and his glory. As we read through these commands, we must move beyond the mere words that are on the page because the right interpretation of the law must also ask, what's the reason for this command? Why was it given? In each commandment, we need to labor to investigate what is it ultimately concerned with. Now, this was the problem. This was a problem for the Pharisees and the reason for the various rebukes that Jesus gave to them in the Gospel of Matthew. They looked only to the outward vice being prohibited and neglected the weightier matters of the heart. And today... We're not immune because many hearers will affirm the reasonableness of forbidding a particular vice 
but fail to pursue the opposite virtue. What I'm saying is that we must never stop at the outward observance of the command, but consider what the lawgiver, God, who redeems his people, is testifying to. What pleases him and what displeases him? Now, many of these commands are served up to us in the negative. We're not doing full justice to what God has spoken if we just merely stop with the negative and say, oh, don't do that. Well, that displeases God. Yes, true. But actually to receive the law as God has spoken, as a revelation of himself, don't stop at just the prohibition. What is this pointing us to? If this displeases him, then friend, what would please him? Give meditation to that. Pursue that as you seek to understand what it means to love God and to love neighbor. And it's interestingly enough, it's why the format of most catechisms take this pattern along, asking what does this command forbid? What does this command? What's the negative? What's the positive? Okay, yes, it says the negative, but what's it affirming? Flip it on its head. Think the reverse. And we give full meditation to this. Okay, so then, what is given to us here in the first commandment? Essentially, we are to live only unto this God. Remember, Israel, as they heard this first command, they had the immediate context of 400 years immersed in Egyptian worship. And what's ahead of them? Well, the Jordan River, eventually. And on the other side of that Jordan, the land of Canaan, filled with the nations and tribes that exalt and admonish and sacrifice to all sorts of gods. And right in the middle of that experience, the God who redeems his people comes to his people and says, you shall have no other gods before me. You are to live only and unto me. You are going to be surrounded by nations who create gods of their own imaginations Gods that reflect their particular passions or their traditions or superstitions. But my people shall have no other gods before me. Meaning God's people were to not give themselves to any other for they were to live only to him. The exclusivity of the Lord's being and glory demands the exclusivity of our worship. Because of who he is, I can give my worship to no other because he alone is God. And he alone is worthy of worship. In a world awash with polytheism, they were to stand apart as a particular and sometimes peculiar people testifying, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We shall love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. Now you might wonder, if the Lord is the only true God, why would he insist that his people have no other gods? Because really one of the primary corruptions of sin inherent to our natural state is that we create gods out of our own imagination, overflowing from our own passions and our own ambitions. That is why Luther would write, a god is that to which we look for all good and where we resort to help in time of need. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your god. 
or as Calvin would teach, that man's heart is so to speak as a factory of idols. The problem is not that Yahweh is competing against a plethora of real and powerful gods, but the problem is that we, as created beings, chosen to be image bearers of God, continually prop up these virtual gods of our own choosing and our own making. And he said, you shall not have any gods before me. To be specific, any time we neglect to give God what he is due, whether out of ignorance or forgetfulness, we break this commandment. Whenever we hold false opinions of God, or we entertain wicked or unworthy thoughts of God, we break this commandment. All of our self-love, self-seeking, obsession with selfish ambition is a breach of this command. It means that anytime I set my affections upon other people, experiences, or circumstances, believing that they will deliver somehow the security, satisfaction that God alone can provide, I break this commandment. You would have to include all unbelief, all heresy, all distrust, all pride, all carnal security, and failures to live as God designs. This commandment means that atheism is a blasphemous denial of God and it is therefore worthy to be worshipped. Any religious system that compels you to pray to saints or angels or any other creatures is a violation of God's good design. For the Lord our God has spoken. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, Remember, the law is given for useful reasons, for a few good reasons. One is to convict us of our sin and show us our need for a Savior. The conviction you're feeling, that sinking feeling, that weight of guilt that comes through this first commandment as you consider what it actually means. And as you remember that the law is holy, that it's righteous, that it's good, that it shows you your guilt, that it shows you you really do need to have your sins atoned for, that is good. Because the same God who gives the law also gives his son. And God promises that whoever puts their trust in Christ, resting in his death, trusting in his resurrection from the grave, shall know the forgiveness of sin. So friend, the weight of guilt that you are feeling, the conviction that you are experiencing as you realize that you break the first command, we even got to the other nine and you are a lawbreaker. That weight of guilt that you are feeling is good insofar as it drives you to Christ and shows you your guilt. Now, this commandment shows us not only what we must reject, but remember, it shows us what we ought to be pursuing. Flip it over. The law comes to us, and it points us in the right direction. This is God's voice that says, this is the way. Walk in it. And what is that? Well, having no other gods also means that we acknowledge God to be the only true God worthy of our worship, and we worship him accordingly. 
And so this is expressed in our thinking and our meditating and remembering as we adore him, as we choose him, as we love him, as we desire him, as we fear him, as we believe in him, as we trust in him. All of that is an expression of walking in this commandment. As we place our hope in him, as we rejoice in him, as we strive to labor with all the strength that he provides to be zealous for his honor, we're walking according to this command. Each time we call upon him, each time we give thanks to him, each time we praise him, we are running the course of this command. As we seek to be careful in all things that please him and we are sorrowed when we offend him, when we walk humbly with our God, we're walking according to the design of this command. We shall have no other gods but him alone. For we are to live only to the Lord our God. It doesn't just tell us that we are to live only to the Lord our God. Because this command also teaches us that we're to live before the face of God. This phrase, before me, do you see it there? It adds a sobering emphasis to this command. You shall have no other gods before me. By these two words, we are reminded that God, who sees all things, takes notice of and is greatly displeased with the sin of having any other God. Meaning, even when it's done in secret, our idolatry is done before the Lord. That's why the psalmist would say in Psalm 44, verse 20, If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would God not discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Or is this not in the same vein as why God would speak to the prophet Hosea rebuking Israel? In Hosea chapter 7, Then I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. The first commandment, comes to us and tells us not only of God's worth to be worshipped, but that all our worship, whether good or evil, is naked and open to his sight. By these two words, before me, we are counseled and we are warned against any sort of duplicitous living. The sort of living that blesses God with my mouth but my heart is far from him. These two words before me, they hunt us down, they wrestle us, bring us to the ground, and plead with us saying, do not think for a moment that your secret loves or private affections are ultimately hidden because all your worship is seen by the one who alone is worthy of your worship. No other gods before me. Ultimately, what we're talking about is summed up in this Latin phrase, Coram Deo, before the face of God. Two words that summarize the realization 
and the desire of every Christian. Because to live quorum Deo is to live your entire life recognizing that you do so in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. You shall have no other gods before me. Because all of life is lived before God. Now, the great proof that we affirm this commandment, that we affirm it to be eternally true and binding upon our souls, is proven when we place our trust in Jesus. Let me explain. When we consider the Ten Commandments as we are this morning, we do not stand at the foot of Mount Sinai. We look upon these commandments that God spoke by the revelation of the glory of Christ as we understand them through his life, death, and resurrection. When we look to the law of God, we see not only the character and the glory of God, we ultimately must see the perfections of Jesus Christ. I think this is why in the book of Acts, Peter labors faithfully and zealously to show that to glorify God is to glorify Christ. The book of Acts we read in chapter 2, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here Peter's expositing Joel chapter 2. And he clarifies that to call on the name of Yahweh, as the prophet Joel says, is to call on the name of Christ. Because later in Acts chapter 4, he preaches again and says, This Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the call remains the same for us today. We owe our allegiance and worship to our triune Lord who's supremely revealed in the person of Christ. Just as God announced supremacy over all the false gods of Egypt, so too Christ Jesus who is over all the blessed forever. He is supreme. So to put it plainly, the great proof that you affirm this first commandment as eternally true and binding upon your life is seen as you place your trust in Jesus. Because not only is Jesus the revelation of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, he's the redeemer of God's elect. So by placing our trust in Jesus, what are we saying? Well, we're saying, first of all, that I have broken this first commandment. God has all authority over all my life because he's the Lord. And yet I see in my life this continual pull to trust in other gods, and that's blasphemy. And secondly, I see that Jesus has not only kept this commandment perfectly on behalf of his people, but he was crucified for his people's violation of this commandment. Therefore, I place my trust in him, and I seek by his grace to give him the glory that he deserves with all I am. 
the person who seeks to keep the first commandment is the same person who says Jesus Christ is Lord. I put my faith in him and I seek to honor him because I need a redeemer and because he has redeemed me and therefore my life is not my own. It's been bought with a price. And so whatever I do in word or deed, I aim to do to the glory of God. This is the sort of life that says, I must love my heavenly father because he has sent his son to redeem me from the bondage of my sin and the death that I deserve. And therefore, he alone is worthy of my worship, of my trust, and my adoration. I shall have no other gods before him because he is the only God. And he is the God that's worthy of my life. Would you pray with me asking that the Lord might grant us such a desire and grow us in our faithfulness of seeking to fulfill that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us by your word, that you've spoken so plainly and clearly and authoritatively that if we were left to ourselves, Lord, we would be those continually churning out mass-produced idols as we continue to find ambitions and passions and imaginations that we assume are worthy to give our lives over to. Thank you, Father, that you have broken into our madness and that you've revealed yourself to be the one true God who is most certainly worthy of our worship. And Father, we rejoice to know that you've revealed yourself in our Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice to know that he is the one who has faithfully kept this and who reveals you to us. Lord, we pray that you would continue to give us great wisdom and clarity as we consider your law and that we would confess with the psalmist and with Christ himself that how we love your law. Father, continue to use it to shape us and to guide us, to show us not only how we love you and love neighbor, but that how it ought to be the very thing that we continue to run the race and run the course in according to your good design. Lord, give us clarity, give us wisdom, and give us unity of mind according to your word, we pray. Amen.